The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. We're following along in the Gospel of Mark and we're in chapter 10. We're preaching through the book and if you're just dropping in today, we just happen to drop on this difficult text here where Jesus is really talking about the cost of discipleship. And as he talks about the cost of discipleship, he's going to talk about uh, marriage, he's going to talk about children, and he's going to talk about money. And so that's the next couple things coming along in chapter 10. But today we'll talk about marriage in Mark chapter 10. The passage is in your bulletin if you want to follow along. Hear God's word. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered him again. And again, as, as was his custom, he taught them. The Pharisees came up and, and ordered to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries her, she commits adultery. Let's pray together. Father, we pray as Samuel once prayed, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And we ask that we would hear the voice of what your spirit is saying to the church. And we ask that you'd help us with this difficult passage to glean from it, to apply it into our own lives, and to bear fruit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've already noted in Mark, and in the Gospels in general, but particularly in Mark, when you get to these actual teaching sections of Mark, and Mark is just full of action, but you do get these teaching sections like this one. And I went through the, the Gospel of Mark and just counted the questions. And if I remember correctly, it was like there's over 160 questions in the Gospel of Mark. And what was surprising to me in the questions was how many of the questions were asked to Jesus, but in how many questions Jesus asked back. And so you could almost read the gospel and just look at the questions. I mean, and people ask a lot of questions today, and it's important to just look at what are the questions and what is Jesus' reply to the questions? Because here's your sermon outline. They ask a question, and Jesus asks a question. There's your outline, because they ask him a question. And they ask him a question in order to trick him, which they often did, as kind of gotcha questions, like, have you stopped beating your wife? Like, how do you answer that question, right? So these gotcha questions are, you know, should we give tithe or not? Should we, you know, should we give taxes to Caesar? And it puts, it, puts you in the horns of a dilemma because 
the reason the location here is mentioned is to let you know he's near Herod's territory, he's near Antipas, Herod Antipas, and you remember the Herodians and the Pharisees were working together to get rid of Jesus. So if we could just come out with Jesus and find out that he's hard on marriage like John the Baptist was with a little trick question here, and we ask him, is it okay to divorce? And he says, no, it's not. Well, then we report it up to the Herodians and we'll get rid of Jesus just like they got rid of John the Baptist. But if he says he's soft on marriage, then you have different schools of rabbinical schools and that puts him in completely at odds with the Shammai school, rabbinical school that said you were only allowed divorce uh, with the exception of adultery. So, or some scandalous sin along those lines. So it puts Jesus in the horns of a dilemma. And so they think they've got him. And so it says, in order to test him, and this word is, you know, the test or tempt, it's a trick question, it's a trap question. And they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And so Jesus, as he always is the master of wisdom, he asks the question back. What did Moses command you? And they give a lame answer because they don't answer the question. You see, they say, they, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. They're quoting Deuteronomy 24. But Deuteronomy 24 is like a fait accompli. It's something that's already happened. It's like you don't teach somebody how to land on the Hudson when you're flying a jet. But if you lose both engines, you have to all of a sudden, we've got to change course. And we're going to land on the Hudson because we've got no other option. And so we're not going to kill people. We're going to land on the Hudson. My father-in-law had a friend that he had a jet and he was flying and it lost his engine. And he was near people and a school. And he could have pulled the chute and ejected and he didn't. He crashed it into a tree, into the, into the forest. Because he didn't want to, and just surmised that he could have saved himself, but all these other people would have been killed. My point is, is that, that that's what divorce is. It's like it's, you're dealing with a mess. It's not God's intention. And Deuteronomy 24, where you have this, this is all the, the rabbinical schools. Everything comes down to Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4. And it's basically Moses is, is giving permission for divorce for something indecent. And then the schools are trying to figure out what is the something indecent that, that Moses is talking about. But what Moses is talking about was there was a big problem. And the problem is the same problem in our culture. And it got really big around 1970 when California came up with no-fault divorce. And then it went to all the states. And by 1985, boom, divorce just exploded in America. And many of us here have been affected by the pain of divorce. Well, what we see is that this was a problem in Jesus' day, but it was a problem in Moses' day. All the way back in Deuteronomy, this has been a, a problem. And so I realize I'm touching a very dicey subject today of, of divorce. And I think, you know, you can't really talk about it with recognizing it's painful. And some of you have experienced it. Some of you, we've all kind of been affected in some way or another. We've had family members that we've seen it, grandparents, parents, um, personally. And C.S. Lewis referred to divorce as an amputation of a limb. And Pat Comroy, who's 
an author wrote this book called entitled Death of a Marriage and his own personal experience of divorce he wrote this painful paragraph that is powerful he said there's not metaphors powerful enough to describe the moment when you tell the children about the divorce to look into the eyes of your children and tell them that you're mutilating their family and changing all their tomorrows personally says it felt as though i had doused my entire family with gasoline and struck a match that is tough stuff and that's and what's happening in jesus's day and in moses's day was the men had put the women in a really bad position because the men could just get the certificate of divorce and it, the women did not have protection and they did not have provision apart from their husband so if if the husband just finds something wrong with her and this there's two schools and the one school is this loose school that basically if a woman does anything wrong anything the guy doesn't like whether he burns the food does something that embarrasses him or shameful or he doesn't like her anymore or like somebody else he can just give her a certificate of divorce but Moses did it as dealing with a problem that's already happened it's like you know how do i land a plane when there's no engines you know you it's not the intent it's just we're trying to clean up a problem and what moses is protecting is basically against wife swapping and that you can't do it again you can't divorce your your wife and she marries another and then if he divorces her she can't go back to her first husband like you can't have any of that if you're going to do it you do it once she's given a certificate of of divorce to prove that she's been divorced and she's able to remarry but you're you're also what the men were doing was making these wives sin because she's committing adultery when she marries another and it really wasn't her fault but Jesus is saying if you divorce and you re and you marry somebody else and you didn't have grounds for divorce you're committing adultery and so we'll get into the exception clause in a minute but you can see that this was a big problem and and the men were taking advantage of the women and you can see even the question even the way the question is asked is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife and i remember i used to read this in the different accounts and i used to wonder how come it never says if a wife divorces her husband and the answer is cuz it just didn't happen they didn't have rights So the way that it's worded is is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And you know, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. You see how everything is and so what Jesus is doing is he's leveling the playing field. He's elevating women and he's saying your lord is is not your husband, your lord is God. It's God who joined you together. what theos has brought together let no anthropos separate what god has brought together let no man separate and so he's elevating women in doing that he's equaling the playing field and so really this is meant to be good news in the sense that we're being shown how beautiful marriage truly is because jesus responds with a question His question is what did Moses command you? That's not the lame answer they gave him. They gave a permission answer. The clean up the mess answer. So they took what Jesus or what Moses gave as a allowance of something that's already happened now and now we were trying to fix the problem as a permission and now that's a license. And Jesus says what did Moses command you? 
what did he command you? And the answer is what Jesus lays out for us. He says, it's because of your hardness of heart that he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So that's what Moses commanded. He commanded something beautiful in verses 6, 7, and 8. And this is the key verse about marriage. When Moses talks about marriage all the way back in Genesis 2, you get that. When Jesus talks about marriage in Matthew 19 and other places, he quotes Genesis 2. When Paul talks about marriage in Ephesians 5, he quotes Genesis 2. So is it any surprise to us that Jesus says, what did Moses command you? This passage is mighty, mighty important. And we have something really important here. And let's just think about what he's saying. First of all, he says, it was because of your hardness of heart that he wrote this commandment. Now think about that. What causes marriages to break up? What causes a root of bitterness? What causes people to get mad and to hold on to grudges? For people not to be able to ask for forgiveness? What causes people to start lacking respect for their spouse or to pull away and not love them? Hardness of heart, hardness of heart, hardness of heart, hardness of heart. It is what erodes marriage. And it's the constant temptation. So you want to know the best way to be a good parent is to love your spouse because they're learning by example 50 million times more than what you're telling them. They're watching how you talk to each other. They're watching how you forgive each other. They're watching how you treat each other. They're watching to see if there's hardness of heart setting in. And we can all tell when the heart isn't pumping right because the, the veins are getting, we got a problem. And when there's hardness of heart, the marriage isn't healthy. And, and, he, and Jesus puts his finger on the problem and saying it's because of hardness of heart. And so we need humility. And we need to be praying for our marriages because there's always this temptation for hardening our heart. And so he reminds them of this beautiful picture that goes all the way back to creation. And so from creation, we have uh, these words in 10.6. And 10.6 is just so relevant in our culture today. Just think about the words. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. I just Googled the question this week into Google, how many sexual identities are there? Here's the answer from Google. There are many different gender identities, including male, female, transgender, gender neutral, non-binary, odd gender, pangender, gen gender queer, two-spirit, three-gender, and all none are a combination of these. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. 
But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. That's a pretty good verse to memorize. As, as your children, our children, covenant children, people you go to school with, they're being tempted to change their identity. And to do so would be to rebel against God's design from the beginning. And the reality is this, you cannot change your DNA. God has made you either a male or a female. Whatever set of chromosomes God has designed you with, from conception, that cannot be changed. Chromosomes are in the cells that make up our bodies. So as much as you can alter your sexual identity through surgery, hormone pills, that cannot be fundamentally changed. And so the harm that this is causing to people and to our society is tragic and it's sad. And Christians are perceived as terribly unloving to not get on board with these policies and agendas that force us to teach and to embrace something other that from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now, we all have to wrestle with we live in a fallen world. We all have fallen desires. We are all perverted to some degree or another. And in Adam's fall, the acid of sin bores its holes differently into each of us. And we all have inconsistencies, inordinate desires, fallen desires, and some of us will struggle with same-sex attraction. We should not be shocked by that. We should humbly see our own faults and fallen desires and not seeing others as bigger than ours. Because the reality is this, we all need Jesus and we're all called to repent and follow Jesus. Everybody has to leave something. But to marry someone of the same sex or to marry more than one person, polygamy, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and hold, his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two become one flesh, not the three become two or any more so. And it's clear that you're not to be marrying somebody of the same sex. This was God's intent and design. And so this pattern of marriage is to leave father and mother, and this, this leave is when we do our premarital counseling, Kim and I will sometimes do those together, the very first passage we talk about is this one. Because the leave and cleave is so foundational, emotionally, spiritually, financially, physically, it's a leave. And some people haven't left emotionally, or they haven't left spiritually, or they haven't left financially, or they haven't left physically. They're still living with their parents, or they're, they're still talking about, I'm going to go home, I want to go home for Christmas. You know, it's like, no, this is home. That's why Kim, you know, our first Christmas, I didn't want to have a Christmas tree. Because I was, you know, Mr. Spiritual, no Christmas tree, you know. And so she wanted to have a Christmas tree. You've, some of you have heard this story. And so I, ultimately, I pulled out the trump card, and I said, well, honey, we're, we're going home for Christmas. She looked at me and said, this is home. I had not left. There had not been a leave. How could there be a cleave? Because I was still living at home. I was a knucklehead in lots of ways. But so the leave is so foundational. When there's a problem in the marriage and you pick up the phone and you dial your parents' phone number and you start to tell them about your spouse, eh, 
That's a failure to leave and cleave. It's a going back because who are they going to side with? Oh, honey, come on back home. Bring your pillow. We'll have a place for you. And this is true. People get mad at their spouse and they, they leave. And sometimes they take their pillow with them and they go back to, to mom and pop because they haven't left. They haven't done the leave and cleave. And this whole idea of one flesh, there's something very, very physical about that. We can't get around that. There's, there's something beautiful here that Jesus is holding up. Now, if you've read this, you have to keep in mind, this isn't the last word on marriage and divorce. And if you're here today, you're like, okay, this is what the pastor and this is what the church believes about divorce. There's a couple other passages in the Bible. There's some pretty big ones, like Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9. I was counseling somebody this week that they're part of a church and they don't want her to get married. And they're telling her, that if you get married because the guy has been divorced, you'll go to hell. Now, the man had biblical grounds for divorce. The wife committed adultery. He had biblical grounds for divorce, biblical grounds for divorce, he had biblical grounds for remarriage. And so I'm trying to counsel her. There, there are other passages like Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9. And that we should just, you know, it's kind of like if you read this passage, you say that's all there is. It's kind of like when we say, well, the statistics on death are one out of one. Everybody's going to die. We're all going to die. Is that true? Well, we got Enoch. We got Elijah. And we got everybody who's still alive when the Lord returns. Is it still true? There are exceptions. It's kind of like I before E, except after E. Or, you know, I, except after C. <laughs> All right, so how about let's just think of some words, you know, like albeit, height, weight. I mean, there's C's. I mean, there's all kinds of words that the rule does not apply. And so here you have an exception, and you say the reason, I'm, what I'm getting at is I think the reason that Mark doesn't record the exception is because it was already assumed. Everybody assumed if there's been adultery, the marriage is over. That's just a, that's a no-brainer. Everybody knew that. So Luke and Mark didn't feel like they had the need to write it. But Matthew wants to make it clear, and he's probably trying to vindicate Joseph for what Joseph did when he records it in chapter 1, that he had biblical grounds to divorce Mary because it was assumed that she had committed adultery. Okay? So, but Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19 say this. Matthew 5.32 says, I tell you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, that's the word porneia, where we get pornography, makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Matthew 19.9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So David Clyde Jones, in his wonderful book on biblical Christian ethics, he has this helpful paragraph of explaining this, and this is what he says. That this term porneia is the general term for illicit or immoral sexual intercourse. The specific form may sometimes be indicated by the context. If the payment of wages is involved, it's prostitution. If it involves close relatives, it's incest. 
If it involves persons of the same sex, it's homosexuality. If it involves in a married couple, it's unchastity or fornication. If it involves a married person outside of marriage, it's adultery. But porneia is the general term that refers to all the above. And so this clause, and then there's one other clause in 1 Corinthians 7 for divorce, that if the unbeliever departs, and so the idea here is if two people get married, one's a Christian, one's not, or one becomes a Christian later after they're married, now you have a, a, a believer and an unbeliever, and the unbeliever wants to leave, the Bible says if the unbeliever departs, let him go, you're free. So that's the other exception, okay? There, there are lots of other nuances to this, kind of like the eye before ye that we, and the key here is, as the PCA position paper uh, goes into, and there's a 111 page PCA position paper if you want to read that, but the Westminster Confession of Faith just wisely counsels that people are not to be left to their own wills and discretions in their own case. The idea here is that it's not for you to determine for yourself if there's a gray area. You know, what if my husband has forced me to have an abortion? What if my husband is beating me? You know, get the elders help. That's why you join a church and you get the elders involved and the elders make a determination and they're able to set you free and help you make it because you're not going to be... Everybody comes up with unbelievable rationale for why they have grounds for divorce. I mean, I have heard some amazing logic over the years. And one was, uh, a woman was reading the case of Lot and Abraham and, and they were too close together and they didn't want strife to be between them because they were too close so they needed to separate from one another and there it is. It's grounds for biblical divorce. It's so there'll be no strife. It will be much better if we just separate. Uh, no, that's not what Moses had in mind in, in Genesis there. So you have to keep in mind that what Jesus is protecting and holding up is something beautiful is he's holding up something beautiful of marriage. And he's also showing that this one flesh is Jesus is taking sex very seriously, and we should as well. The church is not to be prudish or Victorian in its message about sex. God made sex. Sex was made to be an act of worship for married couples. God's given a whole book of the Bible to speak about erotic love and sex between a man and a woman. It's too special for anything but marriage. And the Song of Psalms, the various figures of speech used to describe sex, also speak of sex being reserved for marriage. Solomon compares sex to a garden, spring, and a fountain, compares his bride's virginity to a locked garden, sealed spring, and enclosed fountain. And prior to his wedding night, he realizes he can only enjoy the fruit of her sexual garden or the water of her sexual spring and fountain. And after they have consummated their marriage, he speaks of having entered the garden and tasted its choice fruits and spices. That's God's word. That's beautiful. But you think about our culture today where it's like sex is everything. And it's like, if, you know, Woody Allen, like his God is sex. Like, that's, and he says, you know, whatever the answer or whatever the question is, the answer is sex. It's one of his you know, famous quotes. So it's like, okay. And you, you have this culture today where we talk about safe sex. And there was an article years ago on First Things that just, just consider that phrase, safe sex. The two words are ludic ludicrously contradictory. Sex can be many things, dark, mysterious, passionate, wild, gentle, even reassuring, but it's not safe. If it is, it's not likely to be sexy. 
how to abandon oneself to another, how to give your body into someone else's care and control and remain safe. Sex is dangerous. It's supposed to be. Becoming one flesh with another is too powerful, too dangerous and beautiful for any relationship but a covenant married one that you're committed to for life. And it's such a strong thing that if it is violated, the one flesh relationship, then what happens is, is you have biblical grounds for divorce. Now, does that mean you, you should pursue that option? Well, you, I can't tell you as a pastor, like, you can't do that because you have biblical grounds. But we do have a whole book of the Bible showing you the beauty of a restored relationship after adultery. It's called Hosea. And if you haven't wrestled through that book, I mean, here's a book where a woman has, has been adulterous many times and he's called to go and marry her. And he does. And so there's been plenty of marriages that have been restored after adultery. So there is freedom there on believers' case because the one flesh relationship is that serious that it is violated. If it is violated through adultery, there are biblical grounds for divorce. Now, I would just say, I mean, it's a heavy message on Mother's Day. I hope you guys are still with me here. I'm sure many of you probably feel like you've blown it. And I just want to remind you, in a culture where sexual sin abounds, divorce abounds, think of Jesus' lineage. And in Jesus' lineage, you have the names Tamar, Rahab, David and Bathsheba. They should ring some bells. Tamar acted like a prostitute to save the wicked line of Judah. Rahab was a prostitute. David and Bathsheba were adulterers, and David murdered Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and then married Bathsheba. But when he repented and he received mercy from the Lord, he went in and comforted his wife, and she becomes pregnant again, Bathsheba. And she names the child, and the, Lord, and the word comes from the word of the Lord, from Nathan, to name the child Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord. And that was Solomon. God's grace abounds in Jesus' family tree, even in the midst of sexual sin. C.S. Lewis said in this excerpt, he said that family, you know, people just elevate marriage. And he says, people say charity begins at home. And he says, so does uncharity. And since the fall of man, no organization or way of life, whatever, has a tendency to go right. And if marriage is not redeemed, it will produce only particular temptations, corruptions, and miseries. So the question is, how can it be redeemed? We have to get rid of the weeds. We have to grab them by the root. And we have to get rid of the hardness of heart so that our hearts are being as, as, as Paul writes to the Corinthian church. He says, our hearts are wide open towards you. Are, enlarge my heart, make it bigger. Don't let it shrink and, and shrivel and get smaller and get harder, but bigger and softer. How do we do that? Well, the passages that began the worship service through the worship service were to remind you of Jesus' big heart as the bridegroom and his love for his bride. Jesus loved a bride before the foundation of the world. The dowry to win his bride was to purchase her with his own blood. We just sang about that. He loved her in every way when she was unlovely. Matter of fact, we're described as enemies. 
and he will present to himself this bride as this glorious church without spot and blemish. And so even though there's, you know, we're all defiled, he's, he sees an end of what he is making this bride to be, this beautiful, glorious bride. And we're told that he says, I will betroth you to me forever in Hosea 2. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And he's saying that, okay? Not to the people here that have been faithful and all the good and perfect people. There are not. He's writing this and he's talking about Jerusalem and, and the idea is that Jerusalem is, is just like Gomer in the book of Hosea, the one, who's, the one who's gone off and committed these sexual things. He's saying the people of God have done this in their heart. We've all committed adultery spiritually. We've all used God for our own purposes. That wasn't to bring honor and glory to him, but to get what we want. And so in one sense, we, I mean, very clearly we all need the Lord. And so Jesus is restoring and rightly holding up the beauty of marriage. And ultimately it all points back to him and the whole point of why he made marriage when he says he made them one flesh. Do you know what Paul says when he talks about this? He says, but I'm speaking about Christ in the church. We're of his flesh and of his bones. He says, I'm writing about the church. We're one flesh with him. And so the greater love story is your marriage is to reflect the beauty of Christ's love for you, this other marriage that we're preparing, ultimately we're preparing our spouse to be married to another. We're going to be married to Christ for all eternity. There's a bigger story. It's an earthly display of a heavenly drama. And so we need to live in light of the reality to come of his great love for us. Let's pray together. Father, we need your grace in these matters. We ask that, Lord, you would protect our marriages, that you would strengthen them. For the children here listening, thinking about their future someday, I pray that they would see the beauty of marriage, the beauty of sex, that they would save that for marriage. I pray that for each of us, Lord, we would be sanctified by the word and that we would see our bridegroom and his great love for us who is purifying us and conforming us to your image. We ask that you continue to do your work among us and keep us from hardening our hearts, soften them, root out all bitterness out of our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.